0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Medical University of South Carolina Science Cafe podcast, Science Never Sleeps. I am your host, Loretta Lynch-Riker. We are once again partnering with our Friends from the Heart Lecture Series to help educate the public about the latest advances in heart and vascular care at the Medical University of South Carolina Health Heart and Vascular Center. Today, our guest is Dr. Daniel Judge, Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at MUSC, and Director of the Cardiovascular Genetics Program. Dr. Judge received his medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania and did his postgraduate work at Johns Hopkins. He's board certified in both cardiology and advanced heart failure transplant cardiology. Welcome, Dr. Judge.
1: Thanks very much for including me this morning.
0: It's our pleasure. You, you come to this conversation with an excellent reputation. Um, So we are excited to have a conversation with you today. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions because I've read a few things and uh, this is what I understand. Heart disease is still a leading cause of death in the US. Now a 2020 update from the American Heart Association indicates the age adjusted death rate attributable to cardiovascular disease is 219.4 per 100,000 people. On average, someone dies of a cardiovascular disease every 37 seconds in the US. And recently we see that the mighty Arnold Schwarzenegger appears to have a congenital heart disease. I would have guessed that most of those cardiovascular events were related to lifestyle. You previously suggested that many cardiovascular disease events have a genetic component. Would you tell us more about inherited cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, certainly I'm biased, but I think that most things in cardiovascular disease have uh, a genetic component. Uh, the way I look at it, there are things with a very strong genetic component, something that runs in the family where roughly half of the people have the condition or a genetic tendency. And other things have smaller genetic uh, impact, but certainly those things add up together with environmental stressors to cause. Uh, other cardiovascular conditions like coronary artery disease and hypertension. Uh, it's really sort of on the spectrum of the more common the condition is, the less strong the genetic factors are in impacting those. But they all add up to the final um, result. Uh,
0: that's fascinating. What could, do, would you happen to be able to hazard a guess? How, how what the percentage of the population has some form of inherited? cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, uh, that's a hard one. Um, we certainly know that uh, the if we include hypertension, for instance, or coronary artery disease, then the great majority have, have strong genetic factors impacting their, their development of these common conditions. On the other hand, the rare conditions are um, defined by the national order of rare diseases as fewer than 200,000 Americans. Each of those um, uh, is by itself quite rare, but when you add them up, there's a lot of them, uh, and they turn out to be a substantial number of people. For instance, uh, it's thought that roughly 25 to 30 million people uh, in the U.S. have a rare condition uh, defined by the National Order of Rare Diseases.
0: As director of the cardiovascular genetics program, you have extensive experience caring for individuals and families with the inherited forms of cardiomyopathy, aortic aneurysm, amyloidosis, and cardiac involvement from other genetic conditions. And I think this is what you were just speaking about. What, Mm -hmm. can you be more explicit about what those other genetic conditions are? Mm -hmm. And do all inherited forms of cardiovascular disease mostly manifest later in life
1: yeah, two good questions. Let me start with um, with the range of diseases and conditions that we that we think of as monogenic or single gene disorders, conditions where a strong genetic factor uh, runs in the family. Um, and if someone has that condition, their offspring, their children have roughly a 50-50 chance of inheriting that. It includes, as you mentioned, cardiomyopathies. And cardiomyopathy, that is a technical term, refers to a problem with the heart. Cardio being the heart, myopathy being, it's not working properly, it's mm. bad. Um, the most common reason for a heart to be weak or not to squeeze properly is blockage of the arteries. Uh, but I look at the other conditions where we, we sometimes call it idiopathic, meaning we just don't understand why it's occurred. Uh, if you look at people with an unexplained or idiopathic cardiomyopathy, uh, at least half of them have either a clear genetic factor that we can identify or affected family members, which means it runs in the family, but we just haven't identified the genetic factors in some of those circumstances. Uh, In terms of the age of onset, boy, it runs the full spectrum. Mm -hmm. There are clearly children, infants, um, with early onset forms of genetic heart disease, uh, and then certainly things can be there for a long time and never show up until later adulthood. Um, Some conditions, you mentioned amyloidosis, typically start in later ages, uh, and it just relates to the genetic factors together with the environmental factors that really add up to a later onset of of the condition.
0: I think based on what you just said, it seems to me that research could play a huge part in answering or resolving some of these questions and even finding uh, new ways to deal with uh, inherited heart disease can you share a little bit about the work that you do? And I bring this up specifically because I know that MUSC has a very strong uh, research component in heart disease. And I know how closely you work with other researchers to translate that work into great clinical care. So can you just share with us some, some exciting news in that regard?
1: Sure, let me let me start with a, with a point of uh, common misconception. Sometimes people When they hear about genetic heart disease, think that's research, and really I think that identifying a genetic cause of a condition is no longer research that was 10 or 15 years ago that it it was um, sort of transitioned from something that was done in research laboratories like at MUSC and and really now is a fairly standard clinical test uh, to identify a genetic predisposition to heart disease or cancer or other common conditions. Uh, In terms of the research that we're doing now, and I think this is one of the things that excites me the most about genetic cardiovascular disease, if we can identify a genetic cause of a condition like aortic aneurysm or a weak heart or a thick heart, and then figure out what other factors between the gene and the end result uh, occur, we can sometimes impact those factors early on before Um, the disease is manifest or at the earliest stages if we identify the genetic tendency. On the other hand, um, there's also a lot of excitement about genetic modifications. Um, Even today, there's clinically approved medications that will turn off a gene, um, silence that gene, it's called. Uh, That's pertinent for two drugs that are approved for treatment of genetic forms of amyloidosis. Uh, And then Finally, repairing those genes is something that's not yet ready for prime time, but it's something that we all anticipate will be available in the future, where we can use a therapy that will identify the gene where it has an error or a change, something that shouldn't be there or causes disease, and fix that at an early stage and try to prevent the disease from occurring. That's a big barrier to jump through, but I think at this point, I focus on the current clinical translational research where we identify a gene, we identify a pathway, and we identify medications that can alter the trajectory of that gene abnormality.
0: As I said, it's life-changing, it really is. Um, are any groups more inclined to inherit heart disease or any of these forms that we've just discussed?
1: Honestly, no. Um, really, there's a lot of um, uh, genetic heart disease in men and women of all races, uh, and, and we see it all over the world. There are a few exceptions to that rule. One of the conditions that I study and I've mentioned a few times called amyloid uh, has a genetic tendency for African-Americans. Three and a half percent carry a genetic tendency to amyloid and it's a condition that's often not recognized when it's present. So many physicians or, or healthcare providers um, are, aren't always thinking about amyloid because it's considered a rare condition But if there's features that are concerning, like neuropathy or a thick, stiff heart, um, identifying uh, a genetic contribution can lead to better therapies.
0: Your discussion leads me to wonder about uh, just general practice and how physicians are able to identify uh, potential inherited genetic uh, diseases when uh, they don't know the history of the family, how do they how do they uh, identify that just through an annual um, exam?
1: Well, another great question, and um, I certainly am working to to train the next generation of physicians to understand and and feel more comfortable with the use of genetic testing. Uh, but I would really divide genetic testing into two separate categories. There's um, when you identify a condition, aortic aneurysm, for instance. If you see someone who has a completely unexplained aortic aneurysm and other features that suggest an inherited condition. Uh, We use a panel of genes. We look at that panel of genes and ask, is one of them abnormal to explain this condition? That's generally easier and a much higher yield than something called proactive genetic screening. So I think what you're referring to is a healthy person or a person who isn't known to have one of these rare conditions asking, well, hey, do I carry a genetic tendency to something like that. Uh, That's now available. Insurance doesn't typically pay for that, but it's a few hundred dollars um, that would be proactively um, paid to identify genetic tendencies to cancer, to heart disease, um, and to a handful of other rare conditions. One good example of this that's commonly recognized among many people who've heard about Angelina Jolie and her exciting story of identifying a genetic tendency to breast cancer. She didn't have breast cancer as I understand it, identified that she had a genetic predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer, and then proactively had mastectomy and oophorectomies to prevent the development of cancer. So that proactive approach is something that we hope to see more of as we uh, extend beyond cancer and into other cardiovascular conditions.
0: You said that uh, genetic testing has been around for a while, but for cardiovascular disease, it's it's a relatively new um, discipline.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I'm glad to be able to provide a, a history that spanned the spectrum from the research when it was really done just only in research laboratories uh, to, to now being a fairly robust clinical test. And I'd say it was about 15 years ago that that transition started to occur. In the very early stages, we looked at one gene at a time with a very high cost, and insurance, I think, appropriately always said, well, we're not paying for it. It's really not ready for prime time. On the other hand, today, the costs are so much less, and the the size of the panel of genes that we can quickly look through and uh, clearly look at changes and compare them to hundreds of thousands of people uh, and see is it a common variation or a rare variation. The the pace of research and the pace of understanding of genetics and the pace of technological improvement in genetic testing have led to it being less expensive than a routine test like an echocardiogram or a Uh, other imaging studies that we use for the heart or the blood vessels.
0: That's amazing. Um, And it's lovely to hear that these are cost-effective means of of discovering issues. Um, I I love that. I'm sure the audience does too. So if one has a genetic predisposition to heart disease, uh, would engaging in a healthy lifestyle mediate the issue or is your fate sealed without medical intervention? And I think I, uh, you and I had this conversation before. I uh, relate this question to a friend who was seemingly incredibly healthy, uh, did the annual stress test, uh, knew about his heart hit history issues with the family, um, was robust in every way, and a week after a stress test, um he died of um, a heart related issue and i 'm wondering what good then was was the stress test um and you know what do you do when you think you're doing it uh doing it right and these inherited diseases um can still slay you
1: yeah, yeah the, the, um that that's a, a very big concern for people particularly like your friend whom you mentioned I'm sorry to hear about his situation and I think um, stress tests are useful certainly uh, but they have to be applied in the right context if you're asking a question of is there coronary artery disease a stress test is one of the best ways of answering that question if you're asking is there a genetic tendency to the heart suddenly stopping it doesn't answer that question Um, in terms of and I don't know the cause of death of your friend and I think there's a lot of different reasons that one could die suddenly from a heart condition, aortic aneurysm, arrhythmia, uh, an enlarged weak heart that has uh, no blockage so it wouldn't show up on a stress test as abnormal. Uh, All of those are are relevant. I think addressing the question of how can we identify people before they have a, a fatal initial presentation, well, family history is maybe the most important part. As the holidays are approaching, it's a good time to be asking family members, um, how did my grandfather die? How did my grandmother die? Um, Are there cousins in the family who had something sudden, unexpected, and uh, potentially fatal, something that could be genetic and runs in the family? Then it's a harder question, as you asked, which is, well, what do you do about it? And do you really want to know if it's something that's Mm -hmm. sealed? If your fate is sealed when you identify that gene, I, I disagree completely with that notion. I think um, genetic information is, is important, and it's something that one can really target rather than the unknown and the suddenness that can really um, strike people with these uh, inherited conditions. Um, knowledge is power, understanding that there's a genetic predisposition. Uh, one can then target it, and if it's an arrhythmia problem, there are things like defibrillators for those at the highest risk, that can be implanted to prevent sudden death. Uh, If it's a medication issue or even a cholesterol issue, um, even getting your cholesterol checked is arguably a genetic test because high cholesterol runs in families. But when you identify it, you can treat it and lower the risk accordingly.
0: That's very, that's really heartening, uh, the pun pun intended heartening news. uh, for those folks who think that there may not be any options. Um, I know you deal mostly with adults, but um, I think I read recently how, uh, at least within athletes at, at high schools, uh, they're they're seeing a trend toward a higher level of, of uh, athletes, at least male athletes, with um, who die suddenly right after a, a strenuous football practice or basketball or whatever. They're truly a trend here.
1: certainly any um, young high school student who dies suddenly and unexpectedly is a tragedy and it always makes the news. It always gets a lot of attention appropriately. And I think that the the actual incidence, fortunately, is quite low. Uh, It's a little bit of a controversy because in some countries, for instance, in Italy, if you're competing in high school, college level athletics, you're required to have an EKG, which is a very simple, relatively inexpensive test. But if you applied that to every single high school athlete, you'd have an awful lot of EKGs um, that are not necessary. So the way I think about it, or the way I look at it, particularly in some of the tragic situations where someone's died suddenly is, was there there a clue? Was there something in their family history uh, that helps to understand that? Often that's the case. Often the heart is thick. That's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there have been more than a handful of athletes who've died suddenly or had life-threatening events uh, related to their activity. Um, And if you look carefully within the family and you identify that there's others with a condition like that, you can target those individuals who are at the highest risk, with not just an EKG, but an echo. The same with aortic aneurysm. Conditions like Marfan syndrome make people particularly tall. At times, long bones grow longer. Uh, Arms and legs can be very long. So there are basketball players and volleyball players who have been identified on the basis of their their skeletal features, their tall stature, as having Marfan syndrome. And that's a condition that predisposes to aortic aneurysm and aortic dissection. The aorta is the main blood vessel that comes out of the heart. If it tears, suddenly it's clearly a life-threatening often a fatal event. Um, So understanding on the basis of family history or other skeletal features, is there an underlying genetic condition for a student athlete uh, can really help to save lives.
0: Well, I wonder, um, I think it's great advice and I hope our audience takes it to find out their their health history within their families. But what symptoms uh, would one want to be looking at with, with young adults as far as um, a potential heart disease.
1: Mm. Yeah, fainting spells are maybe the most uh, concerning. Um, lots of people faint. Fainting can be a benign condition. Uh, but if you're having fainting spells, if you have fainted even once for no good reason, um, it certainly warrants a conversation with your physician and probably additional testing. EKG, probably an echocardiogram. Um The benign causes of fainting are are quickly recognized and hopefully uh, providing reassurance to people who have a fainting spell like that. But when we've looked at a condition called arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, a a form of heart disease where the heart's prone to arrhythmia, it's worsened by athletic activity. And um, one of the hallmark features is fainting spells. Um, so, identifying someone who has that condition and, and advising them not to be active with sports can really improve their their chance of survival
0: um, What would you say in the next five years would be the most promising uh, interventional discoveries to come out of uh, cardiovascular um, research? Hmm.
1: Boy, there's a huge question. <laughs> I think, um, boy, I, in my mind, um, the opportunity to understand disease pathogenesis, the cause of a condition like heart disease or um, aortic disease, vascular diseases, and then applying therapies that fix it. As you ask the question of the the, the most important, um, you have to sort of step away from the very rare conditions, which have a very strong genetic factor, to the more common conditions like coronary artery disease, hyperlipidemia, high cholesterols. Um, And we're really focused very well, I think, on on some of those conditions. But um, pushing things back towards the the other genetic factors that contribute to these conditions between the, the rare and the common, somewhere in between, to apply um, the best technology to a larger group of people who are at risk for these conditions,
0: tell me a little bit about yourself in regard to what what brought you to this field in particular
1: yeah, boy, it was a a very natural um, connection for me to to focus on genetic cardiovascular disease, uh, as you mentioned, I trained in cardiovascular disease and focused on heart failure and heart transplant and the The challenge for me always as was recommended by some of my mentors was identifying or asking the question why why does this happen and i i um found myself facing the question of unexplained cardiomyopathy or unexplained aortic aneurysm and and being really just frustrated by that and Mm -hmm. figuring we have to be able to do better than that uh it wasn't i didn't have to look very far to identify that there was often a genetic predisposition um, And that that led to a a focus on those genetic factors and then naturally the transition from identifying the genetic factors that cause the condition to identifying treatments that would be um, uh, available for people who are genetically predisposed to these conditions.
0: So you're very hopeful, I think, about the future. Um, we were talking a little bit about, yeah, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, uh, interventional discoveries. Um, within that realm, both pharmaceuticals and and would you suggest devices um, also play an important part in resolution of, of any of these cardiovascular diseases? And can you talk a little bit about them?
1: I'm fortunate to have trained at the place where uh, defibrillators were first discovered, and the the process of developing the first defibrillator was really quite a controversial one. Um, Michel Morawski was the uh, electrophysiologist or the cardiologist focusing on electrical activity in the heart who, who had the dream and the vision that he could implant a defibrillator, and he was mostly laughed at early in his career Hmm. so largely out of his own garage he was building these these devices that uh, have now become fairly routine for people to um, have a device implanted that monitors the heart and will shock the heart if it has life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias they don't cure the condition but boy do they save lives uh part of the challenge as you've recognized and asked about is well where do we draw the line how do we say this is something that should be approved. Uh, is it safe? Is it effective? Um, and then where, where do we apply the cost? Because they're expensive. And ha- who, who is at the greatest risk and who should get one of these devices? I'm glad to be part of guidelines and committees that have helped to address those questions and, and who is at the greatest risk and who should have these defibrillators implanted, these devices to, to help save their lives. They're not for everybody, even for people who qualify um, some people uh, who've had these devices for a while have been shocked a few times and and really um, dread that shock more than anything.
0: Mm.
1: And I think uh, we have to be better at not only um, identifying the right person to get one, um, but then coming up with alternative treatments to prevent their use. They're they're a good backup. They're a good system of saving lives, but they're not that we should take lightly when someone gets a shock like that
0: where can listeners go to learn more information or to offer their support of the work that you do
1: well to learn more about this exciting research or how you can get involved please contact my philanthropic officer leslie brady at 843-637-5640 or visit judge research lab at musc.edu i
0: would absolutely encourage our audience to do so. Dr. Judge, one of the reasons we have you on today is because you are not just renowned. um, I I have several friends who are patients or have family members that are patients of yours, and the repeated uh, refrain is compassionate, patient-centered, thoughtful, diligent, you don't rest until the answer is there for your patients. And you are just another example of what makes MUSC so great, both your your desire to help your patients and your community and, and to not just Uh, let the answers go by, to really dig deep for the answers for your patients. And um, on behalf of the Medical University, thank you for the service that you provide. It really is impressive. And I'm so grateful there are people like you working at MUSC to serve those of us.
1: Thanks so much for your kind words.
0: Absolutely. To our listeners, we hope you will join us again next month for another edition of Science Never Sleeps. Until then, please be safe. And if you are joining the family for the holiday seasons, make sure you ask about your health history. Thank you all again very much. We'll see you soon.